Hello and welcome to National League Town, Mets fandom, Mets history, Mets life, with Long Island's own Greg Prince and Jeff Heisen. Hey, Greg. Jeff, I am so excited the Mets got Yamamoto. Jeff, I'm so disappointed the Mets didn't get Yamamoto. Jeff, I can't, I'm waiting to find out whether the Mets got Yamamoto or not. There, I've covered all the eventualities. Good night, everybody. <laughs> And there's our show. On today's show, we remember Ken McKenzie and take you back to 1973 once again. But first, as Greg said, the Mets continue to wait on Yoshinobu Yamamoto. Will he sign after Christmas? Will he sign next year? Will he sign five minutes after the show is published? Who knows? But it appears that the Mets' offseason plans are contingent on whether or not they sign Yamamoto. He's worth it. He appears to be great from all indications. Some say that the Mets' offseason plans will change if they don't sign him. They'll go for Blake Snell. They'll go for Jordan Montgomery. By the way, I'm skeptical about Snell because of low innings usage over certain years. I wonder if he's since he went over 180 innings last year, if he'll have arm fatigue this year. He's only gone over 180 innings twice in his career. So I'm skeptical about him. The Mets could go after Snell. They could go after Jordan Montgomery of the world champion Texas Rangers. But Will Salmon says they won't do either. Says the Mets will get lesser pitchers and then go for the better free agent crop in 2025. Who knows about Yamamoto? I keep hitting refresh. As Greg said, we're not sure. I got an email newsletter from Anthony DeComo yesterday that said what the Mets will do after Yamamoto's decision. And for half a second, I thought he made a decision and I started searching everywhere. And I realized, no, it was just more hypotheticals. Uh, yeah, this has been the offseason of waiting on one guy uh, to decide uh, how much uh, he enjoys being wined and dined and uh, perhaps offered by Steve Cohen. Uh, we, we read about the magic dinner that uh, was hosted at Steve Cohen's house. I say that because it just feels like every off season or at various intervals of the year, there was some dinner at Steve Cohen's house with some key player either on the team or uh, wanting to be on the team. The Mets want him to be on the team. And one can only imagine uh, what those dinners are all about, uh, how much actual terms come up versus, gee, it's good getting to know you. And boy, wouldn't it be great to come over for dinner more often, sir, uh, if, if you will sign with us. But, uh, you know, th this is the, the silliness of the offseason uh, when we're left hanging on stuff like this and looking for clues and reading various interpretations of various national and local writers who are essentially reading the tea leaves uh, unless they have really good sourcing. So, yeah, we approach Christmas without knowing uh, what pitcher is going to be under the tree, as they say. And maybe it will be quite a package. Maybe it will be a lesser package. But the important thing is that, that there was thought put into it, <laughs> whoever we got. So, um, you know, so, so, some years I don't mind being strung along. 
what, like an ornament, uh, I suppose. But uh, I'm getting a little impatient myself. I, I, you know, again, it's one of those things that we as fans do. Uh, we get very excited over over people we've never heard of about a year ago and only vaguely knew about six months ago. And now we have decided our world, at least at the moment, as fans revolves around who is going to make this young man very well off. Uh, and yeah, if, if he's all the things that we've read and that we've seen clips of, uh, it will be great to have him. And if he's not here, yeah, plans B through Z are in effect. And, you know, that will reveal itself the way the rest of this offseason has revealed itself, uh, probably slowly and unspectacularly, but with some greater plan in mind. No matter how much money Steve throws at him, if he wants to play on the same team as Otani and play in better weather and be closer to home, he'll play in Los Angeles. If he wants to be closer to home but not be with Otani, he'll play with the Giants. If he wants to wear pinstripes because he's heard so much about the Yankees, well, that's a mistake, but he'll do that. There's just so much that Steve can do. What I did like is that Steve and David Stearns flew to Japan to talk to him. Nobody else did that. I enjoyed uh, Stern's comment about it. When they asked about the trip, he said it was a very quick trip, but Steve travels well. I bet he does. And boy, were their arms tired. In the wake of the injury to Ronnie Mauricio, the Mets are exploring options at third base. One of them is Gio Urshela. Doesn't thrill me. Another option is Justin Turner, who we remember for how great he was after he was a Met. He hasn't been a Met since 2013, but he stays on our mind. Turner's 39. He was with the Red Sox last year, and he can still hit. His offensive war, according to Fangrass, was 7.4, and he had 23 home runs. He might fit in nicely as a part-time third baseman because his defensive war, according to Fangrass, was negative, 16.6. And since Stearns is very concerned about run prevention, his term, then I don't think he's going to want too much of Turner there, which means that he might be the right-handed DH, bat behind Pete, which is nice a nice idea as far as I'm concerned, although that affects Vientos. Greg, do you have any memories of Justin Turner as a Met? Well, Justin Turner was pie man. Some people think Homer Simpson was pie man, but Justin Turner... Uh, delivered most of the pies uh, once he had instituted himself as a guy who would come out to whoever was being interviewed by Kevin Burkhart in those days and uh, as the star of the game and get the pie in the face, including Johan Santana after his no-hitter drawn that mustache on the Mona Lisa, I thought. Uh, But that was off the field. Turner was a useful piece to use baseball speak when he was a Met between 2010 and 2013, especially starting in 2011 when David Wright got hurt. And for the first time in years, we needed a third baseman. and He filled in pretty nicely as he did at second base, uh, could play some other position, played some first base too. Uh, didn't have a lot of power in those days, kind of got together with Marlon Burt in his last year and began to get the hang of whatever it is Marlon Burt had to communicate, which uh, I don't know that that, that was uh, all on uh, part of the, the, the program uh, that Sandy Alderson was trying to institute, uh, kind of freelancing there. But it seemed to work for Turner, especially once he left. Um, you know, I remember 
when he left, there was sort of this uh, whispering, well, you know, he could have been in better shape or whatever. In great shape for the Dodgers all those <laughs> years. And his bat, as you, uh, you know, illustrated, is still in great shape. Uh, you know, one of the things I, I like about the idea of a Justin Turner reunion uh, would be that if he's coming back as the wise old veteran, it would just be a nice full circle moment, uh, given that he was sort of the, the, the kid who was still learning. And he, I, he talked a couple of years ago about how much he learned from David Wright about how to conduct himself as a major leaguer. And he took those lessons and tried to share it, you know, when he was working with younger players as the guy who was in his prime and becoming a veteran. Uh, so there's probably something that Justin Turner could help somebody with, whether it's one of the players who will be striving to take his job as a third baseman, one of the youngsters who's trying to make a name for himself, a guy like Beatty or Vientos. Uh, you know, but most of these reunions, uh, recidivist Mets, as I like to call them, uh, they never really seem to work out as well as we would like. We get very excited at first, and we certainly somebody like me, I like to dredge up the, the old statistics and the anecdotes and say, uh, welcome back, guy who played for Terry Collins. How unusual is that in 20? 24 we would have somebody who remembers what life was like as a met more than 10 years ago but you know that is only garnish on the plate the uh the steak rather than the sizzle is can we get somebody to produce and help fill the void uh i don't know that that's a 39 year old everyday third baseman probably not but he could probably chip in um you know he uh you know, in, in, in the words of the, of the other Tommy DeVito, uh, no more shines, Billy. You know, Justin Turner's not that kid uh, go, going home to get his shine box. He's established himself. He's a made man in the major league, so he may want to go do something else. And that that is his uh, that is his prerogative. All these guys, including Yamamoto, and that's, that's the beauty of free agency and the open market in baseball and what these guys fought for. Uh, we sort of hate when we can't get the players we want and we can we, the Mets, can't convince the players to stay, but uh, you know they do what they all each do what what each is gonna do. So um, I wish, quite frankly, that Brett Beatty had been more impressive uh, in the first place, and when he was basically handed the job in the middle of the season, and had Brett Beatty been on an upward trajectory, uh, this part of the conversation would have been very different. The Mets continued to acquire numerous relievers, uh, including Johan Ramirez, who they picked up from the White Sox. He has no options, so we'll be seeing him steadily as far as it appears in 2024. I thought this was interesting, Greg. I saw this in The Athletic. With Diaz out for the season, last year, Mets relievers threw a total of four fastballs as hard as 98 miles per hour last season. Four. Phillies relievers threw 1,200 fastballs as fa as fast as 98. Well, I, I would say that that's, uh, you know, hey, how many did we throw that were 97 or 96? <laughs> but, um, yeah, that's eye-opening. Um, get well, continue to get well, Edwin Diaz, I suppose. Uh, but as, as if we weren't already... Uh, wishing that uh yeah welcome to this guy without the options 
Uh, you know, and I, I almost wish we had a bullpen full of guys who don't have options because I just think there, there's no traction in a given bullpen the way they operate them today. And I, I don't watch the other teams enough to understand whether it's just the Mets who do this to excess or it's everybody. But the idea that, you know, the bullpen today is these eight guys and the bullpen three days from now will be five of these guys and three other guys will be up and three will be down because they have options. Uh, it just doesn't, doesn't really feel like that's optimal for the team. Now I realize, Hey, if this guy, Johan Ramirez is getting lit up. Uh, wow. I sure wish we could send him to Syracuse or to some other team, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm just, I, I used to enjoy, I think there's a certain train Mets fan who used to enjoy the idea. Hey, this guy, only pitched for the Mets that one game or, you know, he was only here for three appearances one week and then he was gone. Isn't that interesting? And now it's like, that's not unusual anymore. Uh, there's nothing trivial about it. I think it's kind of a symptom of not being able to put together a bullpen, whether they throw 98 miles per hour or have something else going on. And I, and I know one of the, the goals of this offseason has been to build a bullpen with different looks to it. So it's not just uh, a couple of old guys and six six Drew Smiths, basically. So, you know, ju- judgment to be reserved on, on all of these names. We, we have been meeting pretty much for the first time this winter. But uh, th- this is, of course, in, in the modern game, you know, part of what needs to be done. Because do you remember that, that fantastic game Jacob DeGrom threw against the Nationals? It was early 2021. I think it was a two-hitter. He struck out, I want to say, 15. And uh, he, he drove in uh, some runs. That was the last complete game uh, the Mets have thrown, uh, unless I'm missing a uh, seven-inning. You know, they were still playing seven-inning games that year, but I'm not counting the seven-inning doubleheader. I think Tyler McGill had one of those in Washington, a losing cause. But the last, honest to God, nine-inning complete game, and and he was le- left in to go nine innings because it was such a tremendous game. How could you possibly take him out? Um, you know, this is, this is not a new song, but – we don't see anything approaching a complete game anymore. And unless pitchers, the next wave of pitchers uh, can start giving you seven or eight innings on a nightly basis through the rotation, uh, we're just going to keep here is your frequent flyer mileage card to Syracuse. Uh, come back in 10 days because we're going to be sending somebody else down. And it, it, it does not feel like that is what puts together a winning bullpen or a winning team. So, yeah, I've sort of, as usual, wandered away from the topic a little bit, but I'll bring it back to saying, yeah, let's let's see what Ramirez has. Sure. I don't want to let the year end without saying something positive about Rob Manfred. I've had many, many choice words about him, but he actually is implementing something good, and that's the spring breakout game. You're going to see that in Port St. Lucie on March 15th when the Mets prospects play the Washington prospects. This is a good idea. It's not earth-shattering, and you might not even notice but showcasing a team's best prospects, regardless of level, is smart. Instead of hoping that Luis Angel Acuna, Drew Gilbert, Jet Williams, who I can't wait to see, Kevin Parada, Ryan Clifford, and others make an appearance in the late innings of a spring game, they might be in the lineup together for this special spring breakout game. 
Also this way, we can see players who might not be in a spring training game, such as the players the Mets received for David Robertson, who are Ronald Hernandez, a 20-year-old catcher, and Marco Vargas, an 18-year-old second baseman. These players would likely stay on the backfields for spring training, but here they can play in the bigger ballpark and it won't cost the fans a thing, which is shocking because it will be part of a doubleheader with regularly scheduled spring training game. Again, that'll be March 15th in Port St. Lucie. I can't believe it. It's a great idea. I remember worrying about a spring breakout when I was 17. <laughs> um, but, you know, I would go to a dermatologist and he'd give me something and uh, they would lessen. I'm glad you and Rob Manfred are on the same page for once. Just for once. After we finished recording the show, the Mets made a trade. Of course they did. The Mets traded minor league pitcher Coleman Crow to the Milwaukee Brewers in exchange for starting pitcher Adrian Hauser and outfielder Tyrone Taylor. As for Coleman Crow, he's out for the 24 season. The Mets got him from the Angels in exchange for Eduardo Escobar. He wasn't going to pitch this year, so this does not hurt the 24 Mets. In return, the Mets get a depth starter, a fourth or fifth starter, and a backup outfielder, Tyrone Taylor, who has some pop. Plus, fielding more, not a great hitter. He doesn't appear to walk a lot, but he has some power, a little speed, and can help the 2024 Mets. Not an earth-shattering trade, but a good one by David Stearns. What we want out of the Mets bullpen next year, uh, what we want out of the Mets in general, some wins, right? Uh, if we can't get them from the starters, we'll take them from the relievers. Fittingly enough, um, thinking back to 1962, historically, not personally, ain't that old, and remembering the one pitcher, for the 1962 Mets, who gave us a winning record, and it was reliever Ken McKenzie, who we lost recently. I just want to take a moment to underline what a tremendous feat it was to have a winning record for the 1962 Mets, uh, as we probably repeated too often because we run into situations like uh, what's happened uh, with Ken this year. Um, 40 and 120 team. Uh, with records like you know ten and twenty two and or ten and twenty four and five and twenty two and just terrible records because it was just the way the team played even if the pitching was okay and the fielding wasn't and the hitting eh. Ken McKenzie went five and four uh, which is like Tom Seaver going twenty five and seven seven years later uh, a little bit of right place at the right time for a relief pitcher to be doing that but Casey Stengel trusted him trusted uh, this lefty reliever who they picked up from the Milwaukee Braves uh, just after the expansion draft. Uh, the other player they bought, by the way, that that, that same uh, scoop up was uh, the great Johnny Antonelli, who was a big winner for the 54 Giants world champions. Johnny Antonelli opted to retire. Ken McKenzie was much younger, uh, came to the Mets, one of the truly original Mets, one of the first 28 uh, to leave camp in St. Petersburg. And during that very brief period in May, especially when you had to take the Mets seriously as a major league team because they were winning something like nine out of 12 at one point, uh, McKenzie was racking up the wins, uh, reminding Milwaukee that the team that gave up on him, what they gave up on him because he got a couple of wins in one weekend. And we, we get to August. Uh, I want to uh, go to the, the night that made Ken McKenzie famous in a way. 
because it's the night he gets his fifth win against four losses. He does it against the Giants, which is a huge deal in 1962 at the Polo Grounds, not only because the Giants are a legitimate contender and they're going to win the National League Championship. Uh, it's the Giants at the Polo Grounds as the visiting team. And as with the Dodgers coming to play the Mets in New York, uh, tensions were running high, or at least emotions were running high. And Ken McKenzie uh, comes in, gives up a tying run to Orlando Cepeda. Casey Stengel used the lefty against the righty because he gave his version of a sabermetric explanation of how he's better against righties than lefties, even though he's a lefty. Didn't work. But then Ken McKenzie bats for himself and gets on base on an error. And Stengel takes him out, brings in Joe Christopher to pinch run for him. And the Mets put together a rally and the Mets win that game against the Giants. And Ken McKenzie is five and four forevermore in 1962 and for the rest of our lives as Mets fans and for the rest of the Mets eternity. We will say, do you know there was one pitcher who had a winning record in 1962 and it was Ken McKenzie. And there's a little more to Ken McKenzie than what some would call a piece of trivia, starting with another piece of trivia. He's the only Met who had a winning record in 1963. Mets weren't that much better in 1963, Jeff, but uh, Ken went three and one. Nobody else managed uh, to do anything like that. And he was a good enough pitcher that the St. Louis Cardinals wanted him because they were trying to contend for the National League pennant. And they traded Ed Bauta to the Mets. Uh, the Cardinals were in town when the trade was made. You know what these guys did? They traded warm-up jackets because that's how it worked in those days. <laughs> Listen, I, I have a blue one. You have a red one. Let's switch. And Ken McKenzie pitched a couple more years in the major leagues. Interesting thing about Ken McKenzie, uh, to me, at least three things. One, uh, and this is part and parcel of the Ken McKenzie legend, such as it is. Uh, he went to Yale, first Yale man to pitch for the Mets. Not there have been a whole lot of them. The second was Ron Darling, and I think we're still waiting on the third. Uh, gave way to a classic line. I'm not exactly sure who said it first. If it came up organically or just one of those things a sports writer realized was, was too good not to be true, which was uh, getting his contract, Ken McKenzie said, uh, I'm I'm the lowest paid member of the Yale class of 56 because, you know, the major leagues in those days. Uh, to which either Casey Stengel or George Weiss or perhaps Ken McKenzie said uh, on himself, yes, but I also or you also have the highest ERA among members of the Yale class of 56. So, you know, you've got that that thread of Ken McKenzie's life. Uh, you've got Ken McKenzie a little short of, of qualifying for the pension. He pitched in parts of six seasons. And as the pension was constructed in those days, he gets to 1969 uh, about 35 years old, out of baseball, a couple of years coaching at Yale. And he realizes, you know, I need 27 days on a major league roster. He writes some letters to the teams he used to work for and people he knew, including John McHale, the GM of the Montreal Expos, then in their first year, and then more or less as good as the 62 Mets were, which is say they had nothing to lose. And the, not only did he used to know John McHale, because McHale was the GM who sold them to the Mets eight years earlier, he was Canadian, Ken was, a, the pride of Ontario and the Expos, the pride of Canada. So you know what? John McHale said, why don't you join our roster in September? And they signed him and they put him on the roster. Can you imagine that happening today? Used to have stuff like that happen. Satchel Page was an active pitcher for the Atlanta Braves in 1968, I believe. Never pitched, but he they put him on the roster because if anybody deserved a pension who never got one, 
Satchel Page. Well, in this case, it was Ken McKenzie, and he's on the bench. He's pitching batting practice, and he comes into Shea Stadium with the Expos the night the Mets go into first place. It's a natural story for a writer of the likes of Stan Isaacs. Stan Isaacs, I, we probably both remember, one of the great writers for Newsday uh, for many years. Uh, early on, a columnist, excuse me, early on, a beat writer uh, covering the Mets every day. Uh, just great, great coverage. I've, I've been lucky enough to go back and read some of that. A columnist uh, by 1969 for a long time thereafter. And he has a natural story. So I'm going to go talk to Ken McKenzie. And Ken McKenzie says, uh, he catches up with him, says, yeah, I've been coaching. I wanted my pension. Uh, they were nice enough to do this for me. But you know what? Uh, as he, I'm really happy for the Mets. Uh, I still consider myself a Met, which is a, a great thing to say when you're wearing somebody else's uniform. I, I guess the, the actual phrase was, oh, the Mets have always been my team. You know how much the, the Mets were always Ken McKenzie's team? Ken McKenzie's license plate in Connecticut said, 62 Met. Well, you know, all these years, he's driving around, maybe you're on the Merritt Parkway or something, and you're behind a vehicle that said 62 Met. And it wasn't just the 62nd person in Connecticut who requested a Met vanity plate. No, it was an honest-to-God 62 Met who had settled up there and, and lived there all these years. And, and I think the beautiful thing about Ken McKenzie is that he was not only willing to wear it on his, the back of his vehicle, uh, wore it on his sleeve. Uh, anytime you needed, uh, as a reporter, uh, somebody to talk about, what was, it, what was Casey Stengel really like? What were those teams really like? Uh, Ken McKenzie would show up. There was a, a great uh, profile by Dom Amore in the Hartford Courant in 2020, uh, shortly after the pandemic started. So you, you needed baseball content. He, he spent the day with Ken McKenzie. And uh, Ken McKenzie shared all those great stories, talked about Rogers Hornsby, the Mets uh, batting coach, who didn't really talk to people, but he takes Ken McKenzie aside and says, hey, you really know how to swing the bat. He said, wow, he never talked to anybody, but... Maybe that's why Casey let uh, McKenzie uh, swing for himself uh, that, that night in August of 62. And uh, hopefully you'll remember that when we got to Old Timers Day in 2022, Howie Rose begins to introduce all those Mets, 65 Mets. Who does he lead off with? The only Met to have a winning record on the 1962 original Mets, Ken McKenzie. Uh, at that point, uh, he had been in the hospital since old timers day had been mentioned but as as jay harwitz noted uh when announcing his passing he checked himself out of the hospital he had to be there he wanted to be there as several of the other 62 mets did and you know we applauded a lot of people that day uh from the promenade and i took no more pleasure in applauding anybody than i did ken mckenzie uh our first winner and uh, for eternity, her first winner. And and just on, on that uh, only winning record uh, note, 62 only winning record, 63 only winning record when he's traded, 64, the Mets didn't have a winning record among their pitchers. It took until their fourth season for another pitcher. And it, it, these were slight records, like, you know, three and one, two and two and one, stuff like that. But just, just to get had that much of an edge on batters uh, was something for the Mets and Mets fans to hang their hat on. So, you know, Ken McKenzie lived to be 89 years old from all indications, great life, uh, great guy. People spoke so highly of him, those who knew him, those who got to know him in baseball and later. And just want to take a moment uh, to say thanks 
thanks for winning something for us before we could win anything at all, Mr. Ken McKenzie. Beautiful words, Greg. Rest in peace, Ken McKenzie. Our condolences to his family and friends. Before we move on, regular listeners of this show will want to listen to next week's show. That's all I'm going to say. As we look back on 2023, to me, one of the best segments of National League Town was Greg's It Happens in Threes. Thanks, Jeff. Very nice of you to say. Uh, We thought as a holiday celebration of all the Mets can be, and in this season of faith and belief, we would just take a quick moment and say, you got to believe more in 2024. And our way of saying that is by going back to 1973. Uh, we're going to queue up our look back uh, from the, the series. It happens in threes to 1973, because uh, to be honest, all the other ones, and I think they were fine, are all about teams that didn't win a pennants and didn't come close to winning pennants from 1963 to 2023 with the uh, beautiful exception of 1973. So not only do you got to listen, we hope, but you got to believe. Here's 1973, the way we remembered it earlier this year. Our year in the three-sided spotlight this week is 1973. Happy 50th anniversary to the 1973 Mets and the 1973 season. Before we get to the heart of the matter, and goodness knows heart was what came to matter before 1973 was through, let's acknowledge a few comings and goings. Going, going, gone goodbye, as Ralph Kiner liked to say, was Henry Aaron's final home runoff net pitching. Number 698 on his march to Babe Ruth's, 714 and beyond. Aaron, who'd been homering off net pitchers since 1962, victimized a lefty starter who usually pitched in relief, but more on that particular port cider later. Hammer and Hank's ultimate blow in our direction, the 45th regular season blast he accumulated at our expense, could be admired with a little hindsight. True, bad Henry helped the Braves build a 7-1 lead against the Mets that particular July game at Atlanta Stadium, but the Mets rallied like crazy to win 8-7 with the deciding hit struck by the only slugger of Aaron's generation you'd call his peer. More about him later as well. More about the Mets rallying like crazy in 1973, too. Also going, going, gone goodbye, but for the first time, was a home run off Met pitching by Michael Jack Schmidt. Schmidt, a name known better in Philadelphia as a brand of beer, didn't seem like it would become synonymous with bashing baseballs, considering that in his rookie year of 1973, this Schmidt hit all of 196 for the Phillies. But he could slug some, as evidenced by his 18 homers, five of which came against the Mets. Only Bob Bailey of the Expos matched Schmidt's dinger total versus Met pitching in 1973, and only Doug Rader of the Astros exceeded it meaning three third basemen strafed the team that usually didn't have a home run hitting third baseman, though by September they would. More on him later. As for Mike Schmidt, he'd go on to whack 548 home runs in all, as he established himself as the greatest all-around third baseman ever. His 49 off the Mets, the last of them coming in 1989, are tied for second most, with Schmidt's anti-Met total keeping company with another Hall of Fame third sackers, that of Shepard Jones. Jones was a villain at Shea, Schmidt was simply awesome. 
going and gone in a blink on August 1st was the opener of a twinite doubleheader versus the Pirates at Shea. The game, started by Tom Seaver and won by the home team, lasted an hour and 44 minutes. Still, the briefest nine-inning win in Mets history, and that was before anybody had the bright idea of implementing a pitch clock. Lest you think fans in 1973 weren't getting their money's worth, the Mets-Dodgers game on May 24th served as reassurance that baseball could be quite a bargain. Folks showing up to Dodger Stadium that night got to hang around for 19 innings or until 1.47 a.m. local time. For Mets fans back east trying to stay awake to the final pitch of what became a 7-3 Mets win, it became at 4.47 a.m. in New York the latest Mets win in their history, or the earliest if you prefer. May 24th, 1973 also happens to be the birth date of future Met icon Bartolo Colon who began pitching professionally in 1994 and was still taking the hill in the Mexican League as recently as 2021. Something about May 24th, 1973 implies endurance. The makers of Rheingold implied the same, what with advertising the 10-minute head and its other qualities as an original Mets sponsor. You might have figured Rheingold and the Mets would stay together forever, but 1973 represented the last year the Brooklyn-based brew actively carried the distinction of official beer of the New York Mets. Rango would be replaced at Shea Stadium and on Mets TV and radio by Schaefer in 1974, and both beers, with roots in a much earlier era, would be, a, be little more than memories in the marketplace by the early 1980s. Uh, but in 1973, you could still head down to your local bowling alley, order a natural Rheingold, and entertain dreams of being on the newest hit television show in New York, Bowling for Dollars, airing weeknights on Channel 9 at 7.30 p.m. Guest bowlers could, according to the program's ads, compete for big money, while, best of all, viewers could also participate by mailing in postcards to win an equal share of the money. Actually, the best of all part of this interactive extravaganza was that hosting Bowling for Dollars was none other than Bob Murphy. The show premiered on September 17th, and with the baseball season scheduled to end pretty soon, you might have figured the biggest baseball fix you'd have to look forward to as autumn took hold was the voice of the Mets urging on the rolling of strikes and spares. It turned out there'd be more to your life as a Mets fan in September of 1973. Much more. You've probably heard of the 1973 Mets. In the realm of our theme, they are, to date, the only team from a year ending in three to have compiled as much as a winning record. And indeed, they did so much more. Your 1973 Mets are, of course, the second pennant winner in club history. The Mets have won five pennants, two of which led to world championships. The 1969 Mets and 1986 Mets exist on a plane all their own. One plane down are the 1973 Mets, the 2000 Mets, and the 2015 Mets, if we're talking accomplishment. But if we're talking legend, the 1973 team possesses a singular place in Mets history. They are, in a word, canon. They are one of the few editions of Mets since there have been Mets whose story must be told if you're telling the whole Mets story. And this is coming from somebody who prefers we tell the story of every Mets team. Yet if you're pressed for time, I'd contend that there are four teams in Mets history who can never be left on any kind of cutting room floor. The original Mets of 1962, 
the aforementioned World Championship Mets of 69 and 86, and the one Mets team of its level of achievement that we don't instinctively remember for losing the World Series. We remember the 1973 Mets for winning the pennant. Anybody still licking a psychic wound from 2000 and 2015 understands the difference. Anybody still licking a psychic wound from not going all the way in 1973? I feel you. But just getting to that World Series, you know? Since 1973, we treat every so-so season in progress if there is the slightest glimmer of giving the standings as a platform for possibility. When we made a wild card run that didn't quite pan out in 2019, but we're willing to be convinced it might, that was 1973 inspiring our thoughts. When we absolutely made a run to the wild card in 2016, snapping out of our summertime doldrums as August drew toward a close, that was 1973 imbuing us with faith. When the 1999 Mets were two out of a playoff spot with three to play, we knew where to reach back for precedent. That inherent spirit of not surrendering a regular season before the pocket schedule uses up its allotment of tiny boxes is 1973's doing. That is the foremost, log- the foremost legacy of the season the Mets conducted 50 years ago. We never give up when the gear is a mess, but we're not yet buried underneath it. Make no mistake, 1973 was a mess, and we were somehow not yet buried underneath it. It's, it's nice to think of that for 2023 terms. And by the way, through 43 games in 1973, the Mets were 21 and 22, all of one game better than the uh, 2023 Mets. Take that as you will. But uh, you know, for, for, the, uh, for the long view here, I want to go with a pair of mile markers that Mets fans, Mets researchers, Mets historians, Mets writers have been invoking, have been invoking from the moment they became, they became relevant. On August 30th, 1973, the New York Mets were a last place team, sixth out of six in the National League East. On October 1st, 1973, or 29 games later by baseball's calendar, the Mets were division champs. Due respect to every breathtaking stretch run from the 1914 Miracle Braves to the happy flight and rally squirrel of the 2011 Cardinals, there's never been a compressed comeback quite like that reeled off by the 1973 Mets. And that includes their own predecessors from four years earlier, the 1969 Mets who began making up ground on the Cubs in the middle of August and blew by them before the middle of September and route to winning going away. Worst to first was a phrase popularized in the Tampa Bay region when the Bucks shocked the NFL by winning the NFC Central in 1979 after having been literally the worst in 1976 and 77, losing their first 26 games of existence. Yet they had a couple of years to get on track. The 1973 Mets had barely more than a month to vacate the cellar, surpass everybody in sight, and then hold on to win the Eastern crown. Yet they did it. The five teams in front of them with fewer than five weeks to go represented a daunting but not impossible obstacle because the margin separating the sixth-place Mets from first-place St. Louis was six and a half games. For reference purposes, the 1969 Mets at the same juncture of the season had closed the gap between them and the faltering Cubs to five games. And those Mets in second place were 22 games above 500 after 132 games. That was an undeniably good record. You couldn't be sure they'd catch Chicago, but they were, as the saying went, on the come. The Mets of 1973 through 132 games were 10 games below 500. Had Major League Baseball sanctioned gambling the way it does now, imagine the odds you could have gotten on the team 10 games below 500 
sitting in last place one day prior to August's end being in the World Series. We're not burying, but maybe obfuscating the lead a little when we don't explicitly point out the state of the National League East, as August was concluding. The Cardinals weren't first, yes, but were a mere game, mere three games over 500. They weren't exactly a juggernaut at any point of 1973, not reaching first place until the All-Star break and cresting at 10 over 500 during the second week of August. Before the Cardinals, there were the Cubs, who held first all of May, all of June, and much of July. At their peak, they led the East by a formidable eight and a half games and could claim the second best record in all of baseball. But as we learned in 1969, the chronically aging Cubs could find a way to slip out of a race just as easily as they could dominate it for a stretch. The Cardinals had to overcome an awful start of their own, and once they did, their momentum was sapped when they lost their ace Bob Gibson to a season-ending injury. As for the three-time defending division champions, the Pittsburgh Pirates suffered the worst blow of all, losing Roberto Clemente in a plane crash on New Year's Eve 1972. They had a lot of talent, but they lost their heart in that tragedy, and they, like the Cardinals, endured a dismal start. Get led by the all-time pounder of Met pitching, Willie Stargell, 60 home runs against us between 1963 and 1979, and bolstered by the promotion of Clemente's eventual successor in right field, Dave Parker, the Pirates began to play like the Pirates, and by the second week of September, they had surpassed the Cardinals for first. Lurking and probably close to them were the Montreal Expos. In their fifth year of existence and climbing as high as second place and one half game from first after never finishing higher than fifth. Of course, one half game from first could be accomplished with a 500 record in that particular division in that particular month. And that is what the Expos had on September 15th. That's the environment in which the New York Mets, 10 games below the break even point behind everybody, even the perennially hapless Philadelphia Phillies maintained a scintilla of possibility. By September, it was clear there were no world beaters on the National League East premises. Everybody had taken turns getting on a roll, and everybody had taken turns being kind of crummy. Even the Mets had been on something resembling a roll early in the season. They were tied for first when April ended, tied for second when May ended. The bottom had already begun falling out of their season in May, and before June was over, they were in last place. At their furthest from first in early July, the distance from the division's basement to its penthouse was 12 and a half games. Even the 1969 Mets, looking up at the 1969 Cubs, never had to crane their necks that much. But the Mets were owed something more than a semblance of a role. The crumminess of 32 and 49 mope that spanned May through July was beginning to wear off in August. The 12-game deficit reduced to single digits. Eight back became seven back became six back. On August 31st, the Mets beat the Cardinals in St. Louis to move within five and a half games of first place, and at last, out of last, they passed the Phillies. Timing was everything. They reached September theoretically viable, and they reached September in a physical state best described as one piece. We've mentioned some of the impediments to winning that beset the Mets' opponents throughout 1973. We haven't mentioned that the Mets limped along because they were physically depleted. Jerry Grody missed time. Bud Harrelson missed time. Cleon Jones missed time. Two outfielders, George Theodore and Don Hahn, ran smack into one another. One of their primary starting pitchers, John Matlack, took a line drive off his forehead. The best player of all time, Willie Mays, certainly wasn't immune to aches and pains. He was 42 after all. And yet, in this case, time really did heal all wounds or enough of them. By September, Grody and Harrelson and Jones were all back. Matlack shook off the liner and had kept pitching. He was in a rotation with Tom Seaver and Jerry Kuzman, plus a fourth starter gift 
from the gods named George Stone, who won 12 of 15 decisions. Stone had come in a trade from Atlanta with Felix Mion, and Mion was a rocket second. So was Rusty Staub in right field. Third base was forever unsettled at Shea Stadium until the guy they never seemed to team more than a third baseman of secondary resort was entrusted with the keys, Wayne Garrett. Garrett, around since 1969, yet always being elbowed aside by some clever off-season acquisition, the latest of whom, Jim Fergosi, was given up on and sold to Texas in July, caught fire in September, posting an OPS of nearly 1,000 in the weeks the Mets were making their move. Similar leaps in production jumped off the bats of Staub and Jones. Harrelson sliding back into his familiar station at short, stabilized the infield. Buddy and Felix became double play partners extraordinaire. Grody behind the plate was the same target and motivator he had been starters four years earlier. For pitching, there was very little beating Matlack or Kuzman or the soon-to-be Cy Young winner receiver who'd wind up leading the league in just about everything. All of this is to say nothing of the emotional lift Willie Mays gave Shea on September 25th when, in announcing his retirement, explicitly said goodbye to America. Mays was a 211 hitter in 1973, having added only six home runs to a career total that now measured 660. He had long led Aaron in the chase to catch Ruth. Injuries limited the Say Hey Kid to 66 games, and age diminished his speed in this swing. But from the moment he appeared in a New York National uniform in 1951 to the night he bowed out in similar garb 22 years later, he never stopped being Willie Mays, and the fans never let him forget they would always remember him. We haven't returned Willie's goodbye yet. All of this is to also say nothing of the starring role a rookie named Ron Hodges, understudy to both Jerry Grody and Jerry Grody's usual understudy, Duffy Dyer, played as the catcher on the ball off the top of a wall play against the Pirates on September 20th at Shea, receiving the relay on a 7-6-2 sequence that negated the effect of a batted ball you were sure was going to put Pittsburgh into the lead in the 13th inning because the ball that started it off the bat of Dave Augustine was so clearly leaving the park. Instead, it bounced off the top of the left field fence and into Cleon Jones's glove. Jones fired the ball to Garrett, who had moved over to short in the course of events. Garrett got it to Hodges, who was bracing for a locomotive named Richie Zisk, who'd been rumbling around the bases from first. Hodges put the tag on Zisk to end the top of the 13th, and delivered the game-winning hit in the bottom of the 13th. The Pirates were no longer surging. You know what? All of this is to also glide over Han hanging in there after that collision with Theodore and becoming the more or less everyday center fielder. And Theodore, having made the team out of spring training as the Stork, who instantly became one of Flushing's most beloved characters, and the out-of-nowhere contribution from a central reliever Harry Parker, and the innings veteran Ray Sadecki soaked up, and the final innings of the Met tenure of righty Jim McAndrew, who'd make two postseason rosters yet never throw a pitch in any playoff or World Series game, and the bench strength Ken Boswell and Jim Beecham generated from the left and right sides of the plate, respectively, and your first base stalwarts Ed Cranepool and John Milner, who also helped fill gaps in the outfield when needed, and the glue our favorite 1970s utility man Teddy Martinez, provided throughout the year. And have we mentioned the two most legendary figures from the 1973 Mets yet? It says something about the deep and star-laden assemblage of figures that made up the 1973 Mets, a team that is too often dismissed as a fluke of its circumstances rather than a potential powerhouse that needed only good health to plug in, charge up, and really get rolling, that you can tell nearly all of their story and still have two larger-than-life figures 
waiting to be introduced. In any successful Met year, you got to have a little Met magic, more than a little in the case of the 1973 Mets. In 1973, down the stretch, you had to have a manager who understood it wasn't over until it was over. And then when he had the horses, it was time to let them ride. Yogi Berra was then in his second season at the helm of the Mets, following a long stint as a coach. And from the way he guided his club in September, we know that for all his alleged malapropisms and comically mangled asides, he qualified as a seer and truth teller for the ages. Yogi wasn't ready to give up on the last place Mets near the end of August. He told anybody who listened in so many words that the season wasn't done, nor was a team that had enough games left to pass all the teams in front of them. Yogi made his name as a Hall of Fame player under Casey Stengel. Casey recognized Yogi as a baseball man without peer. Yogi served beside Gil Hodges before Gil's tragic death in April of 1972. He no doubt learned a few things from Gil, and Gil didn't keep Yogi around for laughs. Yogi famously had great luck in baseball, but you make your own luck, usually with skill. Yogi made the most of Seaver and Staub and Jones and everybody else he had his disposal, and at his disposal in September of 73, as the man himself might say, he disposed of them good. Yogi got no better use out of any myth than he did the one who didn't exactly avail himself of opportunities prior to the end of August, which was the most vexing of Met, Met, of most vexing of Met mysteries that summer, because Tug McGraw had been one of the best relievers in the National League for the previous four seasons. Everything the lefty could do with a screwball decided to desert him all at once. And as Tug went nowhere, the Mets seemed to follow. Conversely, once Tug decided before Yogi ever mounted that the 1973 season wouldn't be over until it was over, the Mets picked up on their chief fireman's cue. It is not certain in the telling of its origin story whether the team's signature phrase, you gotta believe, was born of Tug's sarcasm. Revered <clears throat> chairman of the board, M. Donald Grant, took it upon himself <laughs> to give the boys in the clubhouse a pep talk, and McGraw synthesized it to those three words. Or maybe it was a sincere reflection of Tug's aspiration for affirmation. In the end, it wouldn't matter. You gotta believe. Caught on as no Met rallying cry ever has. Why wouldn't it? You had to believe once you saw the Mets stop stumbling and begin climbing, besting one NL East foe after another. Until that five-game series in September versus the Pirates, when every night they took a step up the standings until, miraculously, as we Mets fans like to say, we were both on top of the division and had hit exactly 500 at 77 and 77. We not only caromed directly above the apex of the Shea Stadium wall, we bounced over it. It took a little moxie to make sure we stayed over it after taking possession of first place on September 21st, following our fourth win in a row over Pittsburgh, though fait accompli was definitely in the air as much as bowling for dollars was on it. Even the fiercely competitive Stargell, runner-up for the MVP in 73, was moved to concede you could have had the National League All-Stars and they wouldn't have beat the Mets in that series. A week later, we'd be in Chicago angling to cinch or clinch, but the rain and almost everybody else in the East said, not so fast there, believers. As of September 30th, the final scheduled day of the regular season's play, the possibility existed of a five-way tie for the division title, everybody but the Phillies with a mathematical shot. The possibility was remote, but so were the Mets' chances exactly one month earlier. The ball bounced the Mets' way a couple more times, and on Monday, October 1st, the day after the season was supposed to end, the Mets clinched their second division title with Tom Seaver winning and Tug McGraw saving. McGraw was in on two-thirds of all Mets victories as they rose, notching four wins and ten saves in 15 of the highest leverage appearances imaginable. 
The Mets' record cumulatively was 82-79. and 79. Asagi fielded Wrigley canceled the second half of what was to be a makeup doubleheader that final Monday afternoon. But after 161 games, the nightcap was superfluous. So these Miracle Mets didn't even need a full 162-game season to complete their amazing rounds. It didn't add up to a lofty winning percentage, but it outclassed everybody in their midst. From August 31st through October 1st, the Mets went 21-8. and eight. That, if you believe, is a pennant-winning pace any September. Did I say if you believe? No, you gotta believe. To boil down Lakota to this candidate for greatest comeback any of us will ever experience, October would bring the big red machine into the Mets' life, and the Mets would gleefully poke a stick into Cincinnati's gears, taking the National League flag in five. That was the NLCS when we learned chunky league MVP Pete Rose thought lightweight Buddy Harrelson would be easy pickings in a middle infield brawl, but didn't know Buddy would be backed up by all of Shea, not that we condone the flinging of whiskey bottles. After taking care of the Reds in the playoffs, we drew the Oakland A's in the World Series, and after five games, a storybook ending awaited only its punctuation as the Mets led three games to two, and as Lindsey Nelson wrote in his memoir, all they had to do was split to win one game, but they couldn't. They ran out of gas. In the months ahead, America would face an energy crisis, and something similar would overcome the Met organization as the 70s wore on, which might explain why it still nags at least a little 50 years later that games six and seven in Oakland resulted in an ellipsis rather than an exclamation point to the final paragraph of 1973's story. That will sometimes happen when you're facing a dynasty in progress just after defeating a dynasty in the making, just after making unbelievable history. That, too, is what happens in threes, specifically 1973. I hope to be back in about a month where we'll vault ahead by a decade and remember what happened in 1983. Gives you hope for 2023 that a team that wasn't very good for so long and had so many injuries still made it all the way to the World Series, and that's without the benefit of three wild cards. That changes everything. <laughs> Anything you talk about since 1995 is just a different ball of wax than what we experienced as fans from 1969 through 1993, putting aside the strike year that followed. And it, I suppose that's different from what fans before us experienced when it was just two leagues. I think that's really important to keep in mind that right now, as we're talking, I think the entire National League wildcard race is within about four and a half games of one another. The entire National League, that is. So it's late May, or the middle of May, I guess, and nobody's out of it. In those days, the, the, the citations of they were in sixth place, they were in fifth place, that meant something. Uh, not, not just for your resume, but if you're not in first place, you're nowhere. And a lot of the great comebacks that I thought about while thinking about the 73 Mets that have happened since 1995, and really even the great divisional comebacks, you know, forgive me for invoking the 78 Yankees as, as an example, but the 95 Mariners, I mentioned the 2011 Cardinals. You know, we're talking about Either, either wild card or a team that only had to pass one team. Uh, you know, the Yankees, I think, were briefly in fourth place, but, you know, it was just them and the Red Sox. The Mariners just had the Angels ahead of them. 
the Cardinals were chasing the Braves once they kind of shook off everybody. Uh, the Mets had to pass five teams. I think it's still even more so in, in a lot of ways more remarkable than what the 69 Mets do. I think, uh, you know, again, the 69 Mets were there first and they will always have that pride of place in the heart and in the organizational history. And you could, you know, go back and forth on 69 and 86 and what was more amazing, if you will. But I think what the, the Mets did in 73 is just, again, so singular. I, I think, again, it echoed in 2016. I love that, that race to the end. But the Mets were trying to get one of then two wild card spots. So it was a lot easier or at least a lot more viable. It's never easy to keep winning games. 73 Mets, you know, again, starting from behind the eight ball very late, had to overcome you know, a lot of teams, uh, none of whom was having a great year, but they all had good players. You know, again, just those Pirates, those Cardinals, those Cubs, the Expos were up and coming. And yeah, the Phillies had Mike Schmidt in his first full year and were beginning to you know, be the team that they would become for the rest of the 70s and into the 80s. Uh, and I would put the Mets up against any of those teams. Those Mets, you, you had asked about, you know, does their record make them seem somehow less, I don't know, authentic? Again, I think it's the injuries that have made them look less authentic. I think if you had had a full year of healthy Cleon Jones and Jerry Grody and Buddy Harrelson and everybody else alongside what they had, Maybe you're talking about a team that wins almost as many games as the Reds did, which was 99 wins. And you're talking about a showdown between two of the top teams of the era, as opposed to here was the big red machine and here were the ragtag Mets just coming in. But let me ask you something. Uh, I've talked plenty. Um, we're now in the era where we both have memories. Um, what do you remember specifically being Guy in Great Neck, 1973, uh, I guess in high school. Um, what, what, what do you remember about that pennant race, those playoffs, that World Series? How does it live on for you? A few things. I remember a friend who I no longer have contact with on the eve of the seventh game saying to me, I'm sad. I said, why are you sad? The Mets can win the World Series. And he said, because the best sport of all will be over for the year tomorrow. And I thought that was beautiful. I, I don't remember his name, but I remember him saying that. I remember the playoff with the Reds and all the day games. My father had a hip replacement and he was lying in bed and I'd come home from school and watch the games with him. And I'm pretty sure that the Pete Rose fight was part of that. That's game three. Joe Morgan hits a ground ball. Rose slides into second, but Harrelson makes the tag or touches the base and says something to Rose, and they fought, and all heck broke loose. Remind me, Greg, I know that we booed Pete Rose from that day forward. Did we boo him before then? I have no memory of Pete Rose being any kind of a specific Shea Stadium villain before October 8th, 1973. Uh, afterwards, all bets were off, although we did take a break when Pete Rose was going for the National League hitting streak record. He came through New York and the Mets fans gave him standing ovations. They respected what Pete Rose was doing at the time. It was tying and passing Tommy Holmes, who had played for the Boston Braves in 1945. That's where he hit in 37 in a row. And here was Rose hitting 37, 38. 
And it was the first hitting streak, maybe the only hitting streak to capture America's imagination since Joe DiMaggio. And it seemed possible that Pete Rose, who you know, at this point had passed 3,000 hits and had been in World Series throughout the 70s and was an icon, and we didn't know anything else about him, uh, you stepped back and said, oh, my God, this is one of the all-time greats. And even at Shea Stadium, they gave him the benefit of the doubt. I think that evaporated by the next year he was with the Phillies, and he went back to being in the common parlance, kind of a jerk. But you know, he he kept playing, and it's it's fun for me, uh, you know, looking at sixty three, looking at seventy three, and thinking ahead to eighty three. Pete Rose is a part of this history, uh, like few opponents are. But uh, yeah, in those days, even though they had switched to midweek night games for the World Series, the first one was in seventy one on kind of an experimental basis, and then it stuck. Playoff games they didn't start playing at night until seventy six. And by the way, if anybody is a little uh, unclear, I think when we were coming along and these playoffs uh, were starting, again, we didn't call them the NLCS and the ALCS. We didn't call them the championship series. We just called them the playoffs because there was that one round. I think uh, Roger Angel referred to their Madison Avenue name as the league championship series. So there was in those days a best of five. When we say the Mets won in five, they didn't you know, blow the Reds away. They won three games to two. And then you faced Oakland. And uh, yeah, besides the fact that the greatest game of all was about to be over, uh, you know, I, I sort of glossed over it because uh, who knows, maybe we'll, we'll want to revisit this in October. But, um, you know, it, it was right in our grasp. Uh, I clearly, here's my clearest memory of the 73 World Series being lost. Sitting in the lobby of the Raleigh Hotel up in the Catskills, uh, in those days, which is a great phrase to use uh, when you're old enough, in those days, for, for a year or so, um, Veterans Day was celebrated on the last Monday of October, not on November 11th. It became a postal holiday, federal holiday. And that meant that our family decided to go away because there'd be no school Monday for the weekend to the Catskills, to the Raleigh Hotel, where I would and wouldn't get to see Game 6 and Game 7 of the World Series on TV because I had another run-in with my mother. And I'll skip most of that just to say that it's the next morning, up early for some reason. I'm sitting in the lobby with my sister, and they deliver the thin edition of the Daily News, the early edition or whatever it was that would go up, you know, 100 miles north or however far that was from New York City. And I pick up uh, a copy of the Daily News, and I turn to Bill Gallo's cartoon, and there's his iteration of Yogi Berra, maybe with Baseman Bertha, changing a sign that said, you gotta believe, to you gotta bereave. And I asked my sister, who then was a senior in high school, I said, what does bereave mean? And she said, it means to mourn. And I said, oh, I get that. And I can't think of the Mets losing Game 7 without you gotta bereave. But honestly, despite the fact that they don't win the World Series, and even though it would be much better if they'd won the World Series, I'm still amazed they won that division coming from where they did. I remember looking at the standings in late August and actually convincing myself they're not that far out of it. Didn't they come from nine and a half back in 69? They're closer than that now. I know they have to pass everybody. I know they're in last place. I know they've been terrible all summer. And believe me, it was no fun to be going to day camp in the summer of 73 uh, making friends with a Yankees fan 
The Yankees were in first place for the first time that I had ever experienced. The Mets were in last place for the first time I had ever experienced. And I just had to take a lot of grief about it. Well, camp ends, fall comes, Yankees fall apart. Nobody was paying attention. The Mets do what the Mets did. Uh, The day camp invited us all back for a, quote, reunion to try to convince you to come back the next summer, sometime in the middle of winter this was. I run into the guy, and the first thing I said to him, well, what do you think of the Mets now? (laughs) And how about your Yankees? And I think that was the only time in my life I've convincingly gloated, and maybe I'm still paying karma for it. I don't know. But um, those those weeks, again, I think, again, I've I've had a lot of great experiences as a Mets fan. Uh, I would put those weeks, specifically the end of August to the beginning of October, and throw in the Red Series. Greatest, some of the greatest weeks of my life as a Mets fan, some of the greatest weeks of my life, period. And the fact that they lost game six and seven and the controversial decision to skip George Stone, who was an effective pitcher, doesn't change that, does it? It can't because it already happened. You know, I kind of remember some talk about George Stone and three days, four days rest. I wasn't as sophisticated a baseball fan as you might think at 10 years old. So I'm not quite sure I was all on board one way or the other. I just knew that the Mets were playing game six and Tom Seaver is pitching and I could think of worse possibilities. Uh, I guess if I had stopped to put all the pieces together, Tom Seaver has thrown some 300 innings, including the postseason to this point. And George Stone is an effective fourth starter who has not been used yet. And it took everything Seaver had to get them to win the division. No, he had incredible outings against Cincinnati. Uh, just to, to backtrack slightly to the playoffs, the Mets pitching was um, amazing. It was truly amazing. They held the Reds to something like eight runs in five games. Uh, Seaver had just thrown his heart out. They'd all thrown their hearts out. So Seaver on three days rest, what, I think went seven innings and gave up three runs. That's not too bad. We would kill for that today in any circumstance. Would have George Stone given you a better chance to either win on that Saturday or rest Seaver one more day because Matt Black just didn't have enough left and Reggie Jackson kind of came to life and Bert Campanaris made a case to be MVP of that series though Jackson was? Maybe. Uh, you could also make the case that Wayne Garrett, who had kind of cooled off since September, should have been pinch hit for with two on and two out in the ninth. And yeah, 42-year-old Willie May should have come up off the bench. Uh no, it doesn't detract from it. It doesn't detract what I said about Yogi Berra either, because I know Yogi Berra wasn't considered the most innovative manager, but I think he had a way of trusting his players and relaxing them, and it worked. It worked that September. There was no panic in him. Remember, they were running polls in the New York Post, then a reputable newspaper, asking fans to, I guess, you know, clip out a coupon in the back and mail it in. Who should the Mets fire? M. Donald Grant, Bob Sheffing, the GM? Or Yogi Berra, who is to blame? This is in the middle of summer. And it was Grant, overwhelmingly, because he was the least sympathetic character in the entire Mets tableau. But nobody blamed Yogi Berra. I'll say this for Yogi Berra in his defense. And again, I wasn't a player. I've I've heard people like Ed Cranepool interviewed a lot and being asked about George Stone versus Tom Seaver in game six. And I mean, Eddie and others will say, you know, Gil would have done the right thing. Gill would have managed us to a win. Um, Gill wasn't there. Gill d- 
did not manage them to one world championship after others. A great job in 69. And I wish he was still managing in 73. So I've seen it where if only Gil had lived, they would have won that world series. I don't know that they get to that world series necessarily if anybody else is managing. I don't know if Whitey Herzog, who it's been sort of, you know, a, a matter of faith that if only they had named Whitey Herzog manager after Gil Hodges died, everything would have worked out great. Maybe, maybe in the long term, maybe Yogi wasn't the guy. Two years later, they'd fire him. And they had a lousy year in 74. There was a lot of rot in the player development at that point. So, you know, it's it's like any year where you don't win, but you come close. You ask yourself, what could have been done differently? And some years you just get hung up on that. I really don't, 73. I, I knew we would go eventually get, get to game six and, and the questions of who should have started. And that's fair. But God. 73 was such a run hill. You know, I, I still feel like I'm, I'm waiting for that to happen again. And that's who, again, why I revered to 2016. It was the, the closest thing I'd experienced in now the last 50 years to feel in that way again. And, but you know, you, it's one of those things that happens to you once when you're a kid it can never quite be that again. But uh, you know, again, if you can get that 108 and 54 or a season of that ilk and blow the competition away, you'll take something like this. Again, it's different in the contemporary era because we've learned to make the playoffs and make the most of it, and we'll talk. 50 years have passed. On this 50th anniversary, how are we honoring the 1973 National League champion New York Mets? I haven't heard a darn thing, to be honest yep. with you. Yep. Um, I have to imagine something on a small scale will happen. 83, they had a 10-year reunion. 93, they had a 20-year reunion. 03, a 30-year reunion. 13, no 40-year reunion, which surprised me. Again, we could blame it on the Wilpons because we blamed everything on the Wilpons. They gave out a, a deck of playing cards with the likenesses of the 73 Mets and called that their 40th anniversary celebration. I figured back then it was because they had just done 69. It's about half of the 69 team is the 73 team. Maybe those guys just aren't as excited to talk about a year that they didn't win the World Series. But half that team in 73 was new. And for them, a lot of them, it was the pinnacle. You know, again, some of those guys aren't with us any longer. They did celebrations on the 10th, 20th, and 30 years reunions. It was great. Uh, 40th year, maybe it was a Will Pond thing. They didn't bother. Gave out a deck of playing cards with the players' likenesses. I don't know what the status of the 50th anniversary is in terms of observing it. I'd like to think they would do at least something small scale, maybe medium scale, no, they had Bartolo Colon come by and throw out a first pitch for the seventh anniversary of his home run. So if you're going to do an observation, a commemoration of a uh, seven-year anniversary, I think uh, you could probably get one of your five pennants after 50 years, do something special. I know they probably have a, kind of a hangover after last year's Alzheimer's Day. But, uh, you know, I, I would think that there are enough players still capable of coming who would love to be embraced by the fans one more time. I'd love to see that as the theme of a 2024 old-timers day. Say it's still 50 years. No one's going to do the math. Uh, one thing I loved about this discussion, though, is the reverence you have for a team that's not seen as one of the two greatest Mets teams of all time. There's a sense that 73 and 2000, and to another extent, 1999, were not as good not teams to revere to the extent that the 86 Mets were, that the 69 Mets were. But the as you so eloquently put it, the 73 Mets should be revered too. 
Well, just the fact that it gave us, you got to believe, if it gave us nothing else, the fact that we still say that and write that and wink at each other in 2000, Tug McGraw comes out to throw out a first pitch during the, I think it was the Bobby Jones game, the one hitter that uh, wrapped up the Giants series. And he takes off his Mets jacket and he's wearing a sweatshirt that says, gotta believe. And everybody went crazy. And, you know, it stays with us. The there, There's a new documentary out about Yogi Berra, which I get the feeling is mostly about his Yankee days, which is understandable. But, you know, we have Yogi Berra and not just for five minutes. I mean, he's a huge part of our history because he said or might have said, but it's now, again, canon, that he said it ain't over till it's over. And we all knew what that meant. Again, when we saw number 24 retired last year, that was a lot about him coming home. Willie Mays, that is, in 72. But it was a lot about the way he went out in 73 with that incredible night in September. And, yeah, we talked about Pete Rose, and we revere Buddy Harrelson even more than we already would have because he stood up to Pete Rose and, you know, Buddy being Buddy, you know, he became pals with with Pete Rose after a while. And you know, we, we only touched on him and, and kind of touched on him in, in a way that was about how he didn't come through. Tom Seaver had one of his greatest years, maybe his greatest year, if you look at all the interior numbers and all the secondary stats. Uh, you know, he carried that team for as long as he could. Jerry Kuzman, who we always talk about, is so huge in 69. Go look at him in September of 73. Go look at him in that postseason. Again, another incredible – you want to know why number 36 is up there. It's mostly for 69 and for an entire career. It's also for 73. And, you know, never neglect John Matlack, who was hit in the forehead, as I said, with a line drive. And he comes along. He's throwing a two-hitter in the uh, in the playoffs. So just – so much incredible baseball, so many good players, so many great memories. And I, again, maybe it's because I was 10 in 1973, whereas I was six in 1969, 69. I'm just getting an idea of what's going on and it's fantastic, but I don't have any background at that point. 73, this is now my life being a Mets fan when I'm not in school, basically. To have lived it and to be able to have experienced and felt it taking off as it did uh, you know, again, you, you talk to anybody who was more alert to uh, the Mets circumstances in 73 than they were in 69. I don't think there's any question in any of our minds what a special year that was. And I hope, again, to, to me, 2000s a year they won the pennant. 2015s a year they won the pennant. But I also know popularly there's regret attached to it because they didn't win World Series. And when you go after a while and you haven't been in a World Series, you're like, damn, why couldn't it? This, that, or the other thing happened. And even though it was a lot closer in 73, don't really feel that. I just feel good that it happened. You know, the old, uh, don't be sad it's over, be glad it happened. The Mets went to the World Series, went to the seventh game, won a pennant, won a division. You gotta believe. And that'll do it for this episode of National League Town. We'll be back next week with more. And again, you're going to want to listen to next week's show. So until then, I'm Jeff Heisen. I'm Greg Prince. And as always, let's go Mets. Copyright 2023 music provided by the Royal Arctic Institute. Check them out on Spotify.